As we track along with this covenant idea in Scripture, we stop in today on this promise here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, a promise that God makes with an Israelite king called King David. And at the end of the book, and again in the Psalms, Scriptures tell us that this promise here is a covenant that God is making with David. And so we, here we are again thinking about covenant and, and a covenant king. We left off last week with a glimpse into Judges, if you recall, a span of some 400-odd years after Joshua died, and having been led into the Promised Land, Israel then went through this cycle of sin over that time where God was raising up judges for them, which God actually checkpoints for us there in our text in verse 7 and verse 11 as a frame of reference. And in the bit that we've skipped over in between then and today's passage, and particularly in the book of 1 Samuel, Israel decided that they wanted a king. Like all the other nations around them, they wanted a king. And God warned them that a king would actually be a burden on them. But they were quite adamant, and so God allowed them a king. And what do you know? Uh, he was a burden. Uh, that was Saul, uh, the first king, uh, who God mentions here in verse 15. Uh, Saul didn't obey God. And God rejected him as the king. And a fair bit of tension and, and war internally then unfolded for Israel around all of that. But nevertheless, this idea of a king had been cemented in the Israelite mindset by then. And so the next stage of their national history was therefore one of, of kings and kingdoms. And despite some of that initial chaos, this king that we read about today, King David was anointed as king by, by first God and then by the people. And David kind of became a benchmark of how, how kings should lead the people over this next chapter of their history. Mind you, David was not, you know, like a, a perfect or, or sinless person. I mean, nobody is, of course, are they? But one thing that David did seem to have was a love for the Lord. And we get a sense of that love for the Lord today in our text by the way that David desires to do something grand for the Lord. In verse 1, the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surroundings, enemies. And the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. David wants to build a house for the Lord. He has been so blessed by the Lord, all, all that turmoil and conflict of 1 Samuel that we just mentioned has, has settled down and he's now reigning as king over all of Israel. And so he wants to build a temple to honour the Lord who has brought about all these things for him. It's a very loyal thing, a very noble thing, a thankful thing that David wants to do for the Lord that he loves. And Nathan the prophet beside him agrees in verse 3, the Lord is with David, so it is good to do such a thing. But God changes those plans that very night. He tells Nathan the prophet his plan for David. And in a nutshell, God doesn't need David to build him a house. Rather, God will build David a house. Verse 6, God says, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, 
Why have you not built me a house of cedar? God has no need of David building him a house. No, instead God will do even more to bless David. Verse 8, God first recaps what he's already done for David. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And yet God has done all this and will keep doing these things, not just to randomly bless this one guy, David, but moreover because God is still following through on his covenant plans that we've thought about earlier in this series. And so in verse 10, by by bringing all of these things together for David, God is seeking to bless and protect his people, Israel. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. This idea of a king is going to fit right in to God's covenant plans if we keep reading in verse 11. God says to David, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. As often happens in Scripture, God is revealing more here through these words to Nathan the prophet than simply the the earthly and immediate sense that the words convey. This is about more than just David and the offspring that he's about to have. In fact, this covenant God makes with David is a nice point in the middle of our series for us to start thinking more about how all these covenants that God made to his people all string together. The covenants behind us that we've already seen all flow into the covenant now and the covenant still coming. And this one with David therefore points both forwards and back. David himself gets us into that flow. In verse 18, he reflects back on his own life and how God has been with him in the past. Verse 18, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet all the while David knows that that it's for a wider plan of God, of things yet to come. This is bigger than just him. Uh, Yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God, he says. You've spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. 
And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. There is more to come out of this covenant than just David and his so-called house. God is taking this action to bring something about for all humankind. Which, if we start thinking back through our series, will remind us of God's covenant with Abraham. To catch up your memory, in Genesis 12, we read that the, the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's much the same here again with David, because God is still working to that plan. And it sounds like David knows that. He goes on and shows us how this covenant with him flows on from God's earlier covenants. Verse 23 says, And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods? This is the covenant with Abraham that David's talking about here. And so too the covenant then that came more specifically through Moses. And as David now sits as, as king over this people, he now knows that despite all the previous chaos for Israel, even more specifically now, he has been chosen as a continued means of, of God's on-flowing covenant plans. The promise to him fits into the bigger thing that God is so patiently doing. And therefore he knows that it flows forwards too. His sharp catch in verse 19 there about, about this being instruction for all humankind, it, it sets up then a long string of forevers. Forever for David's line. Forever for God's people. Forever for God's name. You establish for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken, and your name will be magnified forever. David can see this covenant flowing out of the covenants behind him and on for the future forever. Good news for his house, no doubt, but so too for Israel and all humankind. And because this response from David so powerfully points us forwards with these forever, forever, forevers, we, we might run with this forwards to Jesus. We've done pretty well, I think, in our series so far to, you know, hold back with the narrative and, and just think deeply on what God was doing each step of the way with these covenants. But let's flick a switch here with David. Let's spend the, the back half of our series now now letting go and, and just leaning and running forwards to Jesus. And to start that today, we might come back to what God had said to David in, in the first half of our text, and, and particularly that forward connection that God gives us from, from verse 12. God says to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, 
and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. At one level, God's words there point only just a bit forward to Solomon. David will have a son called Solomon who came from his body, as verse 12 puts it, and and who took up the throne when David died. And Solomon quite literally did build a house for God's name, verse 13. He built the temple in Jerusalem. And you can follow up that near-future link of these words in, in 1 Kings, if you like. But at another level, God's words here point us far beyond Solomon. Because Solomon didn't live nor reign forever as verse 13 promises. So either it's Solomon's throne that was secured forever, but not him sitting on it, or the offspring that God is deep, deep down talking about here isn't Solomon. And I think it's the latter, because even the throne of the king in Jerusalem gets interrupted when when the Jews go off into exile. Israel as a kingdom only runs another 400 or so years, and in a fractured format for most of that time. It's hardly the glorious and eternal kingdom that God is promising here. But God isn't speaking simply of Solomon or Solomon's throne in Israel. He's talking about Jesus and Jesus' throne. Some of these words line up with Solomon, yes, but so too, deeper down, some of this lines up with Jesus. It's like there are two things in focus at the same time, one near and one far, in just the one text. Solomon in the short term, but Jesus in the end. Let me show you how scripture itself confirms that that longer view. Keep one finger there in 2 Samuel, but flick forwards to the New Testament and, and the letter called Hebrews. Hebrews. It's it's on page 1001 in our church Bibles, if you've got that with you. Hebrews chapter 1. And in Hebrews chapter 1, we read a few things that God has said in Scripture about Jesus long in advance, before Jesus. And check out verse 5, if you will, where comparing Jesus to angels, we read, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son? Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That's our scripture today, back in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When God said that to David, he was talking about Jesus. The Bible explains it so. And again back in Hebrews, notice verse 7. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So the eternal throne in in 2 Samuel 7 belongs to Jesus, doesn't this have to mean? 2 Samuel seven thirteen. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Whose kingdom forever? Jesus' kingdom forever. Jesus' throne forever. 
And so too there are psalms and so on that unpack this and, and help point us to Jesus. We can know for all certainty by the scriptures themselves that God is talking here in 2 Samuel 7 about Jesus. Yes, he still does much of these things for Solomon as David's literal immediate son. And God even keeps Solomon on his throne despite his rebellion for the sake of his promise to David. But yes, so too God is speaking here about Jesus. We know that he is because the Bible tells us that he is. And so we have no choice really but to read this covenant that God makes with David here through, through overlapping lenses. It's about Solomon. It's about Jesus. Although not everything here is about both. I mean, we've already conceded that Solomon's kingdom didn't last forever, and so not everything in verse 13 fits with Solomon. And so too, verse 14 doesn't fully square away with Jesus, because Jesus didn't commit iniquity. Indeed, that same letter of Hebrews that we just looked at, uh, that reveals Jesus as the deep, deep down king of these verses here in 2 Samuel 7, it, it it also tells us in Hebrews that in every respect Jesus was tempted like us, yet he was without sin. And so that part of verse 14 fits for Solomon, but not for Jesus. You see, here's the thing. When Scripture does this, when it speaks of two things overlaying on top of each other, one in the near and one in the far future, we need to remember that the two different lenses needn't fully align. They overlap, and often quite heavily so, but, but not always entirely so. And, and that's the case here. Solomon's kingdom doesn't go on forever, but Jesus as will. And Jesus didn't commit iniquity, but Solomon did. Mind you, isn't it interesting that the discipline for sin, in the very next words of verse 14, nevertheless did get laid upon Jesus. To such an extent that the scriptures even say that Jesus became sin for us. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 To that end, this curious verse in 2 Samuel 7 sets up that beautiful gospel tension expressed in so many scriptures like, like Isaiah 53. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. This is the very gospel, you see, that opens up for us via this king. King Jesus came to carry our sin. And the rod and the stripes that we deserved, as verse 14 puts it, were, were, were thrashed out on him. Anyway, let's look a bit deeper into that far lens of, of 2 Samuel 7. What does it mean that Jesus is the covenant king? What does it mean? And what does it mean of this covenant kingdom being forever? When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, the people on the street were crying out in joy, Hosanna to the Son of David. 
doubtful that they knew why he was riding in, any of them. But he knew full well because he had foretold it repeatedly. He was coming to die. He was coming to be beaten with a rod and to have stripes whipped into him and to be crucified on a cross of shame. When Jesus got to that end, he he stood there and told Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. And yet often what we long for and, and even frame our whole life around are the kind of blessings from God that, that touch only this world. Like the people in the streets singing Hosanna to the son of David without quite knowing why. Or like Pilate not realising Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. These overlapping lenses in 2 Samuel 7 get us thinking about God and about man and, and about the running problem of sin that we've been coming to grips with through this series. The longing of scripture, the longing of these covenants, is to resolve all our sin. Because resolving our sin allows us back to the presence of God. And that's the whole framework set out for us in Scripture. In Genesis 2 and 3, if you recall where our series began, the covenant God has been working through history, the blessing or curse for all humankind is is all going to flow through God's covenant king. And that covenant king is Jesus. And that covenant king Jesus has come to resolve all our sin. And we might be thankful, I reckon, that it's no mere human king that we're looking to on that score. Because Solomon, in all his wisdom, the wisest who ever was, he was still broken and sinful like everyone else. And so too the others. Even David, who was kind of a yardstick for kings, was still fallen in sin. You can catch some examples on the pages that follow. Because everyone, you see, even kings and presidents and popes and queens, all of humanity is fallen in this sin. So we ought to be thankful we weren't waiting for a human king to bring God's covenant blessing to resolve all our sin. Jesus won't make mistakes on this covenant promise. The blessing that we hope in through all of God's promises will most surely come through for us in this King. We can be confident with Jesus. We are safe with Jesus as our King. And whatever our this life might look like, we can trust that what he did has secured us into his kingdom forever. Provided our trust, of course, is in him. Because when our eyes fall back down to this earthly realm, we might look for hope in humanity, mightn't we? But more likely and more subtly, we tend to look in. The rival to Jesus that this world has proclaimed is is me. That is to say, it's you. Self is the modern world's king. And their kingdom is of this world. 
the Bible lifts our eyes up to heaven and it declares that Jesus will be king over everyone forever. So we must take stock of, of what we're actually hoping in and, and the whole way that we live our life in light of these teachings of scripture and we must ask hard questions. Is Jesus my king? And what kind of kingdom am I putting my stocks in? If my life looks like everyone else's life, then maybe myself is still king. But if my king is different to theirs, if I live under Jesus, whose kingdom is not of this world, then surely my life will look different as well. Something for each of us to think through this week. Let's, let's check where we stand with this covenant king. Now, scriptures are going to keep leading us to him, by the way, so I look forward to the rest of the series. But today, be thinking of having Jesus as king in your life, as king, your eternal, loving, gracious and one and only king. Think about what rights he has over you if he is truly your king. What rights he has over you and, and how your life's posture should take shape before him. And let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you as always for your scriptures to us and this text we open today in 2 Samuel 7 and the two lenses we can see here in 2 Samuel 7. Help us, Father, as we start in this series now to lean forwards to Jesus and, and uh, see clearly how things all come together in him. For today, though, Father, just help us to take Jesus on as our King. Help us to understand him as your covenant king and think through how that makes sense of our lives. Search our life, Holy Spirit. Search our heart and life and teach us how we should follow and how we should adore our king. Lift our eyes to his kingdom and fix all of our joy there. In the name of our king, amen.